All right, let's go. James chapter 1. James chapter 1. We will have the text up behind me in just a little bit if you don't have a Bible. Uh, if you don't own one, uh, there's also some physical ones scattered around the room in little racks beneath the seats. Uh, if, if you don't have a Bible that you can call yours, take that one home. Uh, we invite you to. Um, the reason for that is incredibly simple. We believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things, but chief among those important things is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. And so uh, if you are to walk a life pursuing knowing Jesus and having that life be defined by that knowing Jesus and the scriptures are what he uses to do that in you, do the little math problem in your head, just a simple equation, press into the scriptures, he'll use it for the things that he wants to use it for. And so if you don't have a Bible, take that one home. Um, We are a couple weeks now into our effort to walk through the book of James together. James is a letter written by uh, James the Just, otherwise known as the half-brother of Jesus. Right? Uh, and if you don't know much about James's story, here's what I think is the short version. Uh, James moved from being unconvinced by the mes- uh, Messianic claims, the Messiah claims of Jesus, all the way into being willing to die for those claims in only a few years. So something changed in James's life. All right? You don't make that shift unless something of fundamental importance uh, changes the direction you're facing. All right? And what is that in James's life? Well, it's the resurrection. All right? uh, resurrections tend to have that effect on people. Uh, James ends up becoming a leader in the early church. In fact, later on, after this letter is written, we think, uh, it's, James kind of seems to be painted as the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Uh, as the churches begin to spread out and more churches pop up, he's kind of seen as the leader of the, the churches in that area of Jerusalem. And so that makes the book of James something that's probably worth a lot of attention from us. But not only that, so does the time period that James is writing in, right? The more you know about this time period, the more you go, oh, James has got some things to say, all right? Uh, There's a pretty strong argument to say that James is likely the very first thing written in the timeline of the New Testament, all right? Uh, And so uh, a lot of people place it in the early to mid-40s A.D. And if that's the case, then we know at least a few things about what's going on during that time period. Number one, people are scattered by persecution. We talked about that at length last week. Uh, Then that scattering turns into full diaspora. Right? They, they spread out and they stay spread out. Right? They begin to settle into all of these places not named Jerusalem. Uh, and so, um, but two, the second thing we learn is that the leadership structure of the early church is still kind of being hammered out, honestly. Uh, they're still figuring some things out, which means they're still getting a lot of things wrong. Uh, and so that causes some weirdness in people. It causes people to, uh, some weirdness in trying to figure out who to listen to and why they should be listened to and all of those kinds of things. All right? But there's a third thing we learned, and the third thing is this. There's also a lot of confusion at this time swirling around about what it actually means to be a Christian and to follow Jesus. Not not in the teachings of Jesus, that's nailed down, Uh, not at all, Uh, but in the cultural and kind of religious prerequisites necessary to believe and to follow Jesus. Dating the book of James to the early to mid-40s means that it's written before uh, something that we call the Jerusalem Council, which, ha- which happened in, uh, we think, either A.D. 48 or A.D. 49. All right? um, and if you're interested, all that plays out in Acts chapter 15. So, so what's going on in the decade or so leading up to, to, leading up to the Jerusalem Council? What, what's going on there? Oh, not much. Not much at all. Just that Gentiles are beginning to hear the gospel and respond to the gospel. That's all. A bunch of Gentile people or non-Jewish people are beginning to become part of the church and churches are being planted all over the place, including uh, demographically heavy Gentile areas, all right? 
And so now you've got this complicated mix of Jewish background Christians and Gentile background Christians who are now supposed to be one happy family. Nothing big. Nothing big at all. I'm sure that the Jews' multiple millennia-long identity specifically built around being distinct from every other people group won't cause some flare-ups. Right? Like every era of church history, cultural issues cause just a tiny bit of debate. They're arguing over some stuff. In Acts chapter 10, predating all of this, in Acts chapter 10, Peter shares the gospel with a Gentile named Cornelius. Maybe you remember the story. He and his family are saved. It's an, I love that story. One, because in that story, God also opens up the option of eating bacon. All right? It's a great story. In Acts chapter 11, Peter reports that story back to the rest of the Jewish leaders, church leaders in Jerusalem, and we're told in Acts chapter 11 that they marvel that even the Gentiles can receive the grace of God. Acts chapter 11, almost halfway through the book of Acts, and it appears that Pontita Ethne is still not on their radar very well. It's got got a little bit of work to go on that. Making disciples of all nations hasn't seeded all the way home. Remember when Jesus said to, to go into all the people groups? They get to this point in Acts chapter 11 where they're going, well, maybe he meant it. But they're getting there. God love them. They are getting there. And it's clear that God is saving the Gentiles too. But if that's true, then that means that there are now a thousand other very practical, functional questions that need to be answered. Chief among them, do the Gentiles have to follow Jewish identity laws in order to become Christians? You know those kind of things that you read about in the Old Testament? Diet, ritual hand washing, observing the feasts and the Sabbath, circumcision. They got to do all that stuff? I mean, I mean, Jesus was a flawlessly Jewish Savior. He didn't come to undo the law, but to fulfill it in every way, to fulfill it perfectly. Every single thing a good Jew was supposed to do in Jesus' day, Jesus did that. All of it. Never failed a bit of it. So are non-Jewish background Christians supposed to follow a perfectly Jewish background Jesus in those specific ways, yes or no? That debate is the debate of the early church. It's not a small issue. It's not a small issue at all. It's a debate that eventually caused the apostles and the other church leaders that had spread out from Jerusalem to come back into Jerusalem, gather together, and hammer out what the answer actually is. We call that moment the Jerusalem Council. They decide that the answer is no, Those things that marked the Jews out as a distinct people in the Old Covenant were no longer necessary because Christians are are made distinct in a different way now. It's not their circumcised bodies that identifies them as a part of God's people. It's their circumcised heart that identifies them. But if James is written before that moment, before that emphatic answer that You know how debates happen. The answer is given, and that still didn't settle the debate. Continues to rage on for a couple of decades after that. 
But even before that emphatic answer, we think James was written before that moment. And, and so if that's the case, well, then there's still an incredible amount of unsettled questions that people have, right? People have lots of varying questions about claiming to follow Jesus versus living like you follow him. And well, what exactly is on the list when it comes to living like you follow Jesus? And that's the subcultural whirlwind that James writes this letter into. James has an opinion on the debate. It influences the way he writes. And so he writes this letter into that whirlwind to settle some things that he's seeing. Calling it a letter, though, is a little bit of a stretch. Um, James opens up as a letter. It's got a greeting. It identifies the audience. It identifies the sender. All qualities that a respectable letter needs to have, right? Um, But as soon as you get to verse 2 of the letter, uh, James begins to read less like a letter and more like a bunch of long-form proverbs, all right, long-form Proverbs. It carries the same kind of tone as the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. If you've done your, your Bible reading homework uh, for this year, you'll eventually get to the Proverbs and the Psalms and Ecclesiastes and Lamentations and all these things. It carries the same kind of tone as the Old Testament wisdom literature, uh, like pearls on a string, man. It, just, it moves from one spiritual maxim to the next spiritual maxim to the next spiritual maxim. Now, that doesn't mean that James is not a letter. It just means that he's not aiming at the same exact things that most of the other New Testament epistles, most of the other New Testament letters are specifically trying to aim at. Rather than some didactic implication flowing out of a truth of the gospel, James instead is aiming for unfolding the full reality of an authentically faith-filled life. He wants to put it on display for us. Show it off. And this genuine life of faith, proven by the trials that you're facing right now, which is what we talked about last week, it is going to flower out and show itself off in countless ways. And so here's a way that this faith-filled life shows itself off and leaves an impression. And here's another way that this faith-filled life leaves an impression. Oh, you want some more? Oh, great. Here's six more ways that this faith-filled life leaves an impression. That's James's goal. So last week, last week we saw that James redirects their understanding, our understanding of the trials in our lives towards something of purpose, right? They're not, rather than just some random negative occurrence of a broken world, that they can actually be counted, accounted as joyful, products of joy, joy producers. Not because the Christian is a glutton for punishment, not because you know, we want to clench our eyes real tight and ignore the bad things in our lives. That's not what James is aiming at at all. No, it's because we have the promise of God's presence both in the middle of and on the other side of those trials. But also, even beyond that, we can leverage that trial experience towards something that we want even more. James calls it steadfastness. Maturity, Christ-likeness, and staying power that bears a sweeter fruit than ease could ever dream of producing. So you ready to see the next pearl on the string this morning? It happens in verse 5. Look at it with me. James chapter 1, starting in verse 5. It says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Well, that feels pretty straightforward, right? I mean, that sounds real simple. 
Like everybody in here thinks that wisdom is a good thing, right? Nobody's dumb enough to say, I don't want any more wisdom in my life. Maybe you are, I don't know. All right. Of course we all want more wisdom. Not only that, but surely, like surely, every single one of us in here has been in a moment where we realized we were in absolutely over our heads. We understood how desperately we needed an otherworldly wisdom to fix the problem that we were staring at, right? If you haven't been in that moment, you're not paying attention. We've been in countless moments like that. There's no chance that, that we haven't all been there at least once, probably countless times. And James 1.5 is pretty clear, right? If we want more wisdom, ask for it. All right, close your Bibles, let's go home. You never turn us down if we ask for wisdom. I mean, just look at the story of Solomon. What a guy, that Solomon. You remember the story? He becomes king of Israel. God says, ask for, ask for anything you want, boy, I'll give it to you. What does he do? He asks for wisdom. Instead of asking for you know, the things that kings tend to want a lot more of, he says, give me wisdom, God, I need wisdom. What a guy, that Solomon. How Jamesian of him. The story goes that God's impressed with what Solomon asks for him, and so he gives him not only incredible wisdom beyond what he even asked for, but he goes ahead and throws all those other kingly luxuries on top of it. Woo, what a story. I mean, ain't that the kind of stuff that Christian bestsellers are just made of? Somebody contact me, a publisher. I got a word for the church. $14.99 a copy. It'll be great. But those of you who've been keeping up with your James homework, you, I think you're probably starting to get the picture that James is very rarely straightforward, right? The deeper you dig, the more complicated layers you continue to unearth. Yes, wisdom is a good thing. Yes, our call is to continually ask God for more of it, especially in the situations when we learn that we're in over our head. Absolutely. But there are a couple of qualifiers in the middle of verse 5 that you may not have caught on the first reading. What were they? It says, ask God who gives generously. And then it says that he gives to all, quote, without what? Reproach. See, the reason, the reason why God is pleased to give wisdom to those who ask for it is not because wisdom is this incredibly noble thing that's the best thing to ask for and it just blows them away and now you've cornered God to give you wisdom. That's not the game. It's not some key that a cunning person can wield in problematic times to get you over the hump. No. No, see, according to James, wisdom is freely, joyfully given to those who ask for it because of the unfathomably generous character of our great wisdom giver. It's who he is. The Greek word there for generous it carries the idea of being singularly minded. He is focused on that. He is unwavering. He wants to give you wisdom. He delights in giving you wisdom. You don't have to butter him up first. You don't have to find a way to sweeten his into the deal. God, if you give me wisdom, I'll, I'll walk this pathway so your church can flourish. There's no quid pro quo here. Not a bit. No one, absolutely no one has ever in all of history approached God in faithful trust, asked for wisdom, and gotten reproach from him instead. No one. Well, why not? Because that's not who he is. That's not, that's not who he is. It is outside of his character. Which means, right? 
which means to assume otherwise, to, to come to him with anything other than confidence in that moment. It is not merely stumbling over some important spiritual truth that you just haven't gotten mature enough to lock down yet. No, it is actually to question his goodness. It's to impugn his character. Which is precisely the understanding that you have to have locked down before we can move to verse 6. Because if you don't, verse 6 is going to blow you up. Let's look at the next totally not straightforward verse in the book of James. It says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Say hello to a verse in the Bible that has absolutely messed a bunch of people up. Giving some people some problems. So James just called doubting a bad thing, so what do we do with that? I mean... I say all the time here, I didn't say it this morning, but oftentimes in our welcome time, I will say the words verbatim that if you have a question, we're not scared of them. Right? Ask all the questions you want. Questions are a good thing, a healthy thing even. That when used and leveraged correctly, questions are actually invaluable tools to help people grow. God's not scared of questions, not a one. The Bible has never been truly burdened by an honest question, not even close. It is okay to wrestle with this stuff. Newsflash, it's kind of big stuff. There is a specific version of doubt. Hear me, is 100% inbounds. 100% inbounds. It's the kind that is humbly trying to put all the pieces together. You're diligently gathering the information and you're doing your homework and you're posturing yourself in the most teachable way as you know how to be. And maybe you're not there yet. That's okay. It genuinely is okay. But you're hanging around, man. That's a celebratory thing. That's something to, that's something to applaud. I'll take as much of that as you're willing to give. But, but not all doubt is created equal. Not all doubt is the same. Not only is there the kind of doubt that is humbly trying to put all the pieces together, but there's also a kind of doubt that arrogantly refuses to believe what's right in front of your face. Right? We've all seen that kind of doubt. That even though something has been proven to you over and over and over again, you personally, you personally are incapable of placing your trust in someone or something that is obviously trustworthy. And no amount of proof could ever get you there, could ever be enough, because letting go of that doubt would require you to let go of control. It would require you to be dependent upon someone or something else than your own autonomy. And it's this arrogant, I don't think I can trust you kind of doubt that James has his sights on in verse 6 and following. He says, you lack wisdom? Simple. <laughs> I got a great solution for you. Ask for more of it. It's that easy. But listen, ask for it fully trusting who God is. Fully trusting who God is. Don't you see him? Don't come with some double-minded manner, some double-minded posture. Don't you see how trustworthy he is? Don't you see how good he is? How he continually proves himself to be enough? How he continually proves himself to be sufficient? How he continually proves himself to be for your good? Don't come to him double-mindedly. What are you doing? 
You'll come to him in trust. Lip service alone is not enough here. To doubt his goodness in this, that is not humbly trying to put the pieces together. Instead, it's more like saying, sorry God, I know you're great and all, but I just don't trust you. I don't believe that you're willing and or capable of giving me what I'm looking for in this moment. I'd rather go get it myself. Sure, I'll ask for wisdom. Why not? Sounds like a good thing. But I'd, I'd really rather handle it myself, so I'm going to keep my options open. Absolutely, give me some of that other worldly wisdom you got there. But really, you know, really, I got it. I got it. Sure. There is a version of doubt. There is a version of doubt that is absolutely nothing more than a thinly veiled attempt to take a refusal to commit and rename it into something that's easier to swallow. Those are not the same kind of doubts. But what does James say is the end of that kind of posture? He says that person is tossed about like a wave on the sea, driven by the wind. Meaning, they'll chase after everything and anything that sounds good to them. They'll just go for it. Whichever way the current is moving, that is the way they are going to head. So fill in the blank with whatever terrible cultural influence your tribe likes to to rant about. They chase it. And after that, fill in whatever cultural influence your tribe thinks is getting everything right. They chase it. James says that the doubting, the uncommitted and double-minded, they very well may approach God asking for an otherworldly wisdom, an otherworldly knowledge, but functionally, in, re- in realistic terms, functionally, they will, take, they will take most of their shape and they will take most of their direction from some other less divine source. And so they'll go, they'll go this way for a bit and you know, then they'll go that way for a little while and Sometimes, I mean, sometimes they, not only will they manage to <laughs> survive the storm, maybe they'll even land the ship exactly where they were aiming for. Good for them. But it will not be where they needed to be. They will not land the ship where they ought to have landed the ship. See, whether you look at the book of James or you look at any other place, the rest of the wisdom literature in the, in the Old Testament, there's this consistent theme running kind of all throughout every bit of it, over and over and over again. Uh, the wisdom literature keeps coming back to this refrain, man-made wisdom never ever works as well as we think it's going to. It just, it just falls apart, or we can, I mean, we, can, we can go top shelf here, phrase it the way Solomon did in Proverbs 14. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. How your plans going? <laughs> It's almost as if we have insufficient data to know the true answer to all of our problems in life. In addition to that, even when we have some answers, it's also like we have insufficient strength to fix any of those problems beyond some type of temporary patch job. We don't have an inness to, like, like duct tape don't work sometimes. And so while being tossed to and fro by the fleeting wisdoms of this world, I mean, that sounds like a bad day. It sounds pretty rough, but... The problem can actually get much worse than that, which is where James takes it in verse 7. Look at it. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable 
in all of his ways. So according to James, the half-brother of Jesus, there is a posture that can cause you to actively miss out on the wisdom of God in your life. Not just overlook it. Not just choose to ignore it for some other self-centered reason. I'll put it down for a while, maybe come back to it if I've got time later. But that it's not even available to us. That no matter how hard we might want it, we have no right to it. That God would be right to withhold it from us and that we should never expect to be near it again. I don't know how you hear that, but that terrifies me. Anybody else? Um, To be in a place, I don't know if you've seen this in your own life, but to be in a place where my own arrogance and my own distrust can cause God to rightly refuse to grant godly wisdom, Um, to to be left instead to allowing me to continue to chase after, uh, uh, just headlong after my folly, to actually achieve and gain the thing that my sin-bent heart thinks is wise and best. I've, I've seen where my man-made attempts at wisdom often land me in life. And to be honest, I don't want to go back to that dumpster fire. No, thank you. Unstable in all of his ways is actually a pretty strong description of some parts of my life that I'm not very proud of. And so the obvious next question is this. What, what do we do? What do we do when... When we come to the realization that we need wisdom, well, it's here that an authentically genuine faith shows itself to be exactly what it is. James already told us what to do. It's really not some complicated thing. He's already said it verbatim. We ask God for wisdom, period. And we ask in full confidence that he is both trustworthy and good. That he gives wisdom to all who come to him in faith and ask for. Not because we found some way to unlock the code, unlock the blessing, but because of his unfathomably generous character. He's not singularly minded. He's focused. He's he's, he's unwavering. He delights in giving you wisdom. Newsflash, you don't have to butter God up. Congratulations. I don't have to find a way to sweeten his part of the deal, and there's definitely no quid pro quo here. Not a one. No one has ever approached God in confident trust, asked for wisdom, and then gotten reproach from him instead. Because that's not who he is. You and I, you and I may act double-mindedly sometimes. I had some of that this week. You and I may act in double-minded ways at times, but not him. He's not like that at all. And so if you're here this morning and you're, uh, you're already a follower of Jesus, whether, listen, whether you've historically done well on this kind of things, or maybe, maybe you've seen your fair share of dumpster fires, right? No matter which one of those you are, if you're here this morning and you're already a follower of Jesus, our response is the same as it is every single week. We repent of sin and we lean into what he reveals about himself in the text, right? That's our call. And so, uh, and this week, I, I, man, I think he's showing us that he is exactly who he says he is, even if we're not up to speed with that yet, right? In the moments where I doubt his goodness, it's not because his goodness has changed, it's because I'm being an idiot, He's exactly who he says he is, even when we're not up to speed with that. And so, 
What we believe about who God is will always, I mean, always be buried in how we approach him for what we want and need, right? You just can't get around that truth. But I got good news for you because there's also this thing called the finished work of Jesus, right? And he knew we were idiots when he went to the cross. He knew we doubted his goodness even as he took on the burden of our sin. Even your biggest dumpster dumpster fire is incapable of pushing him all the way away. You can't do it. You don't have the strength for that. Just set aside the double-mindedness and press in. Just lay it down. Set it down and walk away from it. It really is that easy. Trust him. And all the yeah buts that you can think of right now, it's it's just that unrighteous version of doubt creeping back in through a different door. So slam the door shut and let's go. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. That's a time that we give you to kind of translate response from a head thing into an action thing. We, we, we get how the world works. Like if we shut this down and walk out the door right now, you're going to forget about everything we just talked about. And so we want to give you three verses and a bridge to let it marinate. That's why we do that. I'll, I'll be down front if you want to talk. But what if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet? Can you respond to God's word? Yeah. Yeah, you can. I, I say it all the time around here, and I mean it. Um, I think it's incredible that you're here. I think it's amazing. So keep pressing in. Keep asking good questions. I'm still not scared of them. But here's a question for you, though. Is the doubt that you're hanging on to right now, is it more of the humbly putting all the pieces together type, or is it more of the no proof will ever be good enough because I don't want to lose control type? Those are very different things. Those are very different things. I'm here for the first one. I'll give you all day. Ain't nobody can help you with the second one. But let's assume the prior for just a second. The Bible teaches that all people, by default, are separated relationally from God because of our sin, that we are owed the just and right punishment for sin. The Bible calls it death. It's owed to us. It's what we deserve. But the Bible also teaches just as emphatically teaches that God is rich in mercy and that he loves us with a great love, that even when we are dead in our trespasses and sin, that he makes us alive together through Christ by his grace. God sent his son, Jesus. He put on flesh and he dwelt among us. He lived the sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living. He died on a Roman cross as a full and final payment to make uh, provision for your sin, payment for your sin. And he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his own perfect and sufficient righteousness. And now as the king who conquered sin and death, he calls on you, you personally, to respond to him in repentance faith. He doesn't care what your grandma did. He doesn't care what your kids did. He cares what you believe about him. He calls on you to respond to him in repentance and faith, to turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. What we believe about who God is will always be buried in how we approach him. You just can't get around that truth. In repentance and in faith, what you believe about him is how you approach. Jesus is either exactly who he claims to be or he's not who he claims to be. Maybe today's the day that you'll finally trust him. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. I'll be down front if you want somebody to talk to about it. I'd love to help you process through what a response of faith looks like. Maybe you're here today and you need to respond in some other kind of way. Maybe that's by formally joining our church family. 
Or maybe it's by finally being obedient to Jesus' command to be baptized. Or maybe today's a good day to publicly say yes to some call he's placed on your life to take the gospel somewhere outside of Nashua. I don't know. Whatever it is, I want to be helpful. So whoever you are and however God's word is calling you to respond this morning, let's all respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for James. There are countless times in my life that I am in desperate need of wisdom. There's never been a moment where you did not have enough wisdom to supply my need. The disconnect is that I am often distrusting. I'm often prideful enough to believe I can get it handled on my own. Or even more tragically, that that the wisdom you give will be something different than what I want. But you are good. And you are wise. And you are righteous. And you love me in spite of me. God, clear away any double-mindedness in me. Clear away any sinful attempt to hang on to control, to hang on to power, to hang on to whatever. Help me see you as you are. God, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known? Blow doubt away this morning. Show yourself. Open eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to know you, God. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray.